It's a good thing there's plenty of chairs in the hall. Sometimes we can feel after a day or two days, sometimes after several days, that the, the body feels the effect of sitting and walking and the uh, effort and the commitment that's required of us to engage in this practice is remarkable and uh, challenging. And I'd like to speak this evening about meeting the challenges of this practice, of this situation that we're in. And we can quite easily and in fact very understandably imagine that we're here to learn meditation or to practice meditation. And uh, as I say that, you might be thinking, hmm, is he going to tell me we're not? But of course, we are here to learn and to practice meditation. But ultimately, we're here to see our mind, to meet our life, to understand what's going on. And meditation is a, a vehicle through which this is possible for us. But to meet this mind, to meet this life, we have to be willing to encounter it in the condition we find it, rather than in the condition we would prefer it to be. And this reality or the circumstance that we find ourselves in is perhaps rather well described by the uh, scholar monk and practitioner Nyanaponika Thera in his book The Heart of Buddhist Meditation. Uh, Nyanaponika died not so many years ago, but he was a uh, very inspiring uh, practitioner and teacher and uh, early sort of translator into a more accessible um, form, some of the, uh, the Buddhist teachings. And he once, or he said in his book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, he said, of this mind, and I sometimes find it more useful to speak of heart-mind when we talk about mind, because what we conceive of as mind as Westerners is often more in relationship to the intellectual functions of our mind. We think of our thinking mind as what is our mind. And that's a part of it, but it's really not all of it by any means. And there's a, a larger or broader understanding of what it means to uh, use that word that I think is expressed, or the word that the Buddha used, uh, citta, which um, I think is better described as heart-mind, in including that whole sensitivity apparatus we have. That is a, another teacher of mine, Ajahn Sachito, and a friend also, he says, that which is affected and responds, which is I think a lovely way to sort of encompass the sense of what it is that we feel to be inhabiting or coming from, something that's affected and responds. Anyway, I'm getting a little bit away from the quote from Nyanaponika. Um, what he said was, um, this heart-mind, or he said this mind, but this heart-mind is bound all over and yet can know freedom here and now. Very succinct statement of our condition. This heart-mind is bound all over. 
we feel and we encounter so many ways and degrees and places in which we feel held, contained, limited, entangled. And yet this mind can know freedom, can be released from that entanglement, from that bondage, right here, right now, in our life. And this really is the invitation of our practice, to recognize both the way and the process whereby the mind is or becomes bound, and equally to realize and to discover for ourselves its innate potentiality for freedom. The Buddha said once, and when speaking or quoting from the Buddha, I, I feel sort of obliged to say that many very learned scholars who have studied the languages of the Buddha um, disagree on exactly how to translate exactly what he said. So whenever I say the Buddha said this, I'm saying what I think someone else thinks that Buddha meant when he said something that none of us actually understand anymore, because he said it two and a half thousand years ago in a language that is not a living language. It's only existent in the texts that his teaching were recorded in. Apart from that, nobody knows how to speak it. So there are differing views and opinions. And um, nonetheless, um, the Buddha said something essentially to the effect of, it would seem from the translations, this mind is luminous, brightly shining. It is afflicted or clouded by forces that visit it. And again, when we hear that statement about our mind, or we could say our heart mind, luminous, brightly shining, he's not talking about my mind. You know, that's, oh, the Buddha has a mind like that, sure. But this mind, is that my experience of it? And yet he goes on to say, it is afflicted or clouded by forces that visit it, by attachments that come into it. And the implication is from outside of the mind. To understand the things that we struggle with, that we feel bound by as visitors, rather than as the, the natural or the somehow inherent occupiers of the territory is very useful, it's very helpful. And then the, the full quote the, the Buddha goes on to say, he says, this mind is luminous, brightly shining. It is afflicted by forces that visit it. This the unlearned people do not understand, and so for them there is no cultivation of mind. This mind is luminous, brightly shining. It is free from forces that visit it. This the wise understand, and so for them there is cultivation of mind. Understanding this, that although our mind is visited by and afflicted, there is also a way in which it is free from this. And that is the basis. That's what makes sense of the journey of mental development, of cultivation. Bhavana, as the Buddha said. And bhavana is the word that we get meditation as a word from. The, the word meditation isn't really that great a translation. 
because it tends to suggest thinking about or sort of cogitating on in its original usage. But cultivating, bringing forth something of benefit, of wholesome or value. And so it's important for us to see and to be able to recognize the forces that arise or that it, we encounter in our experience and very frequently it seems in our meditation that, that challenge us, that make it hard for us to not become bound, to not become entangled in them. And it's necessary for us to see them very clearly. Sometimes they're described as hindrances, and this is one of the translations for this group of forces or mental factors. And it's sometimes a little unhelpful, I think, to use that language because it suggests that they're somehow intrinsically in the way, as opposed to being understood as something which we need to skillfully learn to meet. And therefore, I would term them challenges rather than hindrances. Not to say they aren't difficult things to encounter. And you've probably heard of them all before. You've certainly encountered them, I imagine. And we've even mentioned some of them already. But just to, to name the, them in the, in the way they're classically framed, craving, the, that urge of wanting, of needing, of grasping, of desire, sense of having to have or to keep or to get something or some experience. Aversion sense of resistance or fear of or anger towards, that sense of wanting to push away or avoid a certain experience or get rid of something that we find undesirable or painful to us. Restlessness, a sense of being agitated, unable to land, unable to rest, unable to simply be still for a moment. So we can encounter this. Or sloth, heaviness, sleepiness, drowsiness, this quite the opposite of restlessness or agitation, but where we're kind of flat and sort of as if we've been deflated and there's just no energy or capacity or ability to engage. Or doubt, skeptical doubt, the sense of losing confidence, losing faith, losing a sense of possibility in ourselves, in our practice, in Dharma teachings or life itself, which can be profoundly undermining and painful to us. These forces or mental factors that we can encounter and experience are powerful and we need to respect them because if we do not un recognize them and understand them and know how to work with them skillfully, they have the effect of pulling us away from our basic orientation, which is towards being present, towards being awake, towards opening to what is true, to what is possible for us. And it's like if we're on a journey and we have a basic orientation, but we keep getting pulled away in different directions, it's going to take a long time to get where we're going. And so we really need to understand how to work with these. These forces, these experiences that we encounter. And so to see them as visitors, I think, is really useful. Even though they might seem to have been, you know, resident for quite some time in our experience, nonetheless to understand them as visitors, something that comes. And what do we do? How to treat a visitor appropriately? There's a guest at our door, they knock. You know, do we give them the keys or do we say, okay, come in, it's your house, you can live here forever? 
I mean, if we've ever done that with a guest, we know that after a little while we start to regret it. <laughs> Even with the most generous aspiration and intention at a certain point, isn't it? They say, you know, guests are like um, fish. After three or four days, it's a little old. They go stale or something. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you leave the fish in the water, of course, which is really what they prefer, they don't go stale at all. But um, that sense of when we encounter these particular forces or energies, sometimes we think or believe that that's who we are. We, we imagine or somehow allow or give in to that particular force. And it's like we forget who lives here. We forget our deeper aspiration. We forget what we really value and love and is precious to us. And we get caught by the momentum and the force of these energies. So we don't want to abandon ourselves to these forces, these energies, these experiences. And yet if we fight with them, if we try, and if, if someone's knocking on our door and we're saying, no, you can't come in, you can't come in, and then keep knocking on the door, it ends up being a struggle, it ends up being a battle. It's like with a lot of these forces, we can't stop them arising. And having arisen, it's like they're here. We can't wish or pretend, wish them away or pretend they weren't happening or somehow just pull our head in the sand and hope they'll go away. I was working at my desk some um, time ago and uh, one of our cats, and I have to pronounce that clearly, cats, because uh, after one retreat recently when I talked about our cats, um, someone was at the end of the retreat heard thinking I'd been talking about my children, um, which I don't have any, but uh, maybe the relationship I have to the cats is similar to what one might have to children. But anyway, it was a very interesting thing happening because I was trying to work. And in fact, I was trying to work on a Dharma talk that I was going to be giving to uh, a retreat that, um, that afternoon. Or in fact, yeah, that evening. And um, this cat, a very lovely little creature, um, really likes attention, really wants to be held, wants to be cuddled, wants to be stroked, doesn't sort of, isn't really content with just the occasional bit of attention. It really just wants full-time contact. And so it was in there in my office and it's sort of like, so what do I do? I can, you know, I don't want to pick him up because I'm trying to work, you know, and yet he wants to be picked up. He's coming up, he's climbing, he's getting on my paperwork, he's, you know, in my face. It's like, so can I lock him outside? But I know if I try and lock him outside, he'll just stand there at the door meowing or scratching or in fact, he'll even jump at the door and try and knock it open. And it's like, you know, that's so distracting, I can't work anyway. So it's not really going to help locking them out. It's not going to help picking them up. What do I do with it? And it's really interesting because I noticed I was actually reflecting on the hindrances at the time. And I noticed I was caught in the same bind we have. Do I get rid of it or do I just go with it, you know, <laughs> and abandon what I'm trying to do? And I thought, okay, so what does practice say about this? Oh, okay, let's just see if I can, he really wants to be here. Wow. So I just said, okay, I'm not going to pick him up, but I'm going to let him really be here. And so he climbed up on my, um, I wasn't running, trying to push him away from my notes or get him off my computer. So I was trying to look something up on. I just, he climbed up on the desk. He sort of walked around my notes, looked at the computer, looked at me, sat down on my lap and curled himself up. And he wasn't in the way. He really wasn't in the way. He was just there, purring. And it was like, ah, oh, that's right. That's what we're supposed to do. It's like, just let it do what it needs to do. Don't get into a fight with it. 
don't do your, you don't, I myself don't have to do what it wants to do, which is get into the cuddling thing, but just let it do what it needs to do. And so with, with the hindrances or with these challenges that we encounter, it's like making space for the experience rather than making an obstacle out of it. How quickly we make obstacles out of our experience. And that very way we're relating to them is actually most of the problem. Either it's an obstacle or it's who we are. And either of those perspectives is a problem. And so the power of these forces is that they distort our capacity to see what's true if we identify with them or if we battle against them. So if we can see them clearly, excuse me, if we can see them clearly, they don't actually have any power to dominate us or to control us. But, and there's a catch to this, for the most part, they're really uncomfortable experiences. They're really painful to us or scary to us if we don't either identify with them or resist them. And so, and not just uncomfortable, they're also really unflattering if we're supposed to be a meditator and we're supposed to be kind of calm and still and clear and bright and free of such things as we somehow remarkably seem to imagine we should be. So it's not very flattering. It's a lot like, oh gosh, you know, what if everyone else has noticed? Here am I going through all of this. And what happens when we either struggle with or identify with any experience is that we disconnect from the simple sense of openness and presence that just knows what's going on and that can receive it and allow it to be so. We lose contact with that. And the loss of contact with that simple quality of presence, of openness, of this is what's happening here. And the way in which when we're in contact with that, we're deeply in contact with our life. And that's actually the greater suffering. That loss or that disconnection from where we are, the disconnection from being present, is actually the deeper suffering. Though we don't see that so easily, we don't understand that so easily. It looks like the experience is the problem. So we need to attend to these experiences, to name them, to not reject them, nor yet abandon ourselves to them. And one of the reasons which makes it, I think, really hard for us to, to engage skillfully with these kind of ex with experiences that are difficult for us, that are confusing or painful to us, is that we have this really strong idea of somehow that means that, you know, my practice isn't working. Or it means that, you know, I can't do it. Or, and it's like we have some idea that we should have got past all this already. You know, we should have done that yesterday. Or if we've been practicing for some years in our life, you know, we think, can't I just get over this, we think? And there's a, it's understandable that we might wish that to be the case, but you know, there's, a, I think, a very instructive story that I, I once heard from um, describing an encounter between uh, the Dalai Lama and uh, a student of his. And uh, a student uh, 
had an opportunity to speak to His Holiness about his meditation practice and uh, described to him, you know, he'd been practicing for 20-something years and had all these challenges and difficulties and all the ways he was struggling with various things in his life and various things in his meditation. And, and the story goes that His Holiness sort of listened very sort of sincerely and compassionately. And, and, and at the end he said, Yes, I know. It's like that in the early years. And if we can think of the first 20 years as the early years, it's like, ah, oh, we can relax. It's like, ah, oh, didn't have to get it all figured out yesterday or by the end of today. It's like, ah, oh, oh, okay. Maybe we're actually on the right track. And in fact, we are. The fact that we start to encounter these forces is because... To a significant degree, we are challenging their unquestioned dominance in our mind by what we're doing here. And when that happens, they assert themselves. They start to fight for their territory. So it's not necessarily, although it's not necessarily fun, it's not necessarily a bad sign that we've encountered something that's difficult or challenging. And so we need to learn to work with them skillfully to see how can we meet this? What's useful here? And it's very much a pragmatic thing to learn, to understand them and to learn to work with these forces. So to work with craving, the sense of wanting, of desire, of grasping, how there's something there that if I can just get it or just keep it then, you know, it's sort of like this fantasy world arises for us in, in that sense of wanting that if only this, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. Then my meditation will be great. Then, and it's like we, we invest all this importance and weight in a circumstance or in an experience, either getting it or keeping it or repeating it. And this idea that the experience in and of itself, the thing that we crave for or grasp after, is going to be able to give us lasting satisfaction. This is something we have to really see. And it's something we'll speak about. I think the ocean said much the same thing last night and we'll probably say much the same thing again and again. To really see this movement, this tendency of mind, how strong it is in us. And how it, how it really comes between us and the possibility of really enjoying and delighting in that which we love. Have, have you ever had the experience, and I, when I first had the, uh, well, I'll tell you, the experience of being in a situation where there's something really beautiful, that you could, that's something you really enjoy, and being frustrated that you didn't bring your camera, or you can't get a good photograph of it because there's something in the way, or something like that? It's really interesting how that often that happens to us. It's something really lovely, and what we want is to be able to capture it, parcel it up, put it in a picture that we can take home, show our friends, look at tomorrow or in a year's time, in the hope that then it will make us feel as good as it's making us feel now. And yet often the experience of wanting to take hold of it and keep it is one that we don't actually enjoy it because we so much want to take hold of it. 
or we've even got our camera and we're taking all the photographs, but while we're doing it, we're caught up with wondering, is it a good picture? Will it be good? Did I get the light right? What if it's blurry? You know, when I first went traveling, I had a camera that I'd um, bought the first time in my life. And after several months, I, I, I got rid of it because I couldn't stand that my mind kept doing that. This was before I encountered the Dharma. And it was like, I hated that. I didn't really understand it. I thought, just get rid of the camera, which helped, but it wasn't really a final solution. <laughs> and so in our practice, do you notice how that happens? How we start relating to something like, this is something I must have. I've got to have. You know, sometimes it happens because things aren't that entertaining, and so we start imagining what might be better. Or because we've actually encountered something that we like or enjoy. And on one of my, I think, early retreats, I had this very strong experience of the, the power of all of this when they served lasagna for lunch. And I love lasagna. I'm just like, mm, great. So there was this whole thing that as soon as I realized what was going on, what was going to be available to consume, and you know, it's pretty much like, it wasn't at IMS, but it was a situation you know, like this, not that much entertainment going on, so it's like, wow. Here it comes. And trying to, you know, when the bell goes to walk, mindfully, so no one will notice that I'm really rushing to the front of the queue, but just, you know, looking, trying to look mindful, but I wasn't mindful. It was more like, what is it? And getting there, and then it says, you know, take a moderate helping. So, oh, no. You know, okay. You know, what's the most that can possibly be a moderate helping? And then getting back to my place, thinking, well, it's only a moderate helping. Will there be enough for seconds? And so, okay, I better eat this quickly so there might be a chance to get... And shoveling this lasagna in, full of wanting more and fear that I wouldn't get any more. And at the end of it, I was stuffed. I hadn't enjoyed the experience at all. I felt slightly ill. And I really didn't want any more. And I had not enjoyed the lasagna because of how much I wanted to have more. I mean, it's tragic, isn't it? Tragic. And we do it all the time. You know, we can spend so long thinking that, oh, if only my knees stopped hurting and my mind would stop chattering away, then it would be great. Then it would be calm. Then this retreat would really be what it's supposed to be. And, you know, sometimes it happens that things settle down, open up. And it's like, ha. Ah, and for maybe a moment, we just open, relax, ha. Ah, and then the mind comes in with, ha, ah, got it, great, we're here. Wow, it's good, isn't it? Wonder how long it's going to last. What did I do to get it like this? Was it because of that extra walking I did or because I used an extra cushion or, you know? And a few moments later, we realize, of course, that moment of calm and peace and connection and openness is gone because we're busy trying to figure out how we got it and how we're going to keep it. And of course, in the next moment, we might be plunged into a sense of despair and frustration. Oh no, look, I you know, messed it up, wasted it, I'm hopeless, I can't do this. So we're asked to let go. With regard to that urge, that movement of trying to get or to keep, when we notice the energy of it, the energy of it it's a very strange mixture of something that seems to promise 
satisfaction. But if we turn our attention to it, the experience of that desire, energy, is actually quite uncomfortable. And what we're looking for is the relief that will come when it goes away. When we get the thing we want, that desire energy stops, pauses. And it's like we associate the getting the thing we want with feeling great. Not because the thing is all that great, but because for a moment, the energy of that wanting, that craving, that needing, that I've got to have, goes away. And it's like, ah, relief. But then a moment later, it comes back, wanting to have it more, or again, or bigger, or faster, or stronger. So the relief is all too temporary. And the very process of enacting and trying to fulfill that energy, or that movement, that way we interpret the energy as, I have to get this, or have this, or keep this, in fact is feeding it and making it stronger. And so letting go doesn't mean making it go away, but it means taking or having the courage to say, okay, I'm not going to try and pursue that thing. I'm not going to try and figure out how I got it or how to keep it. I'm just going to be here with its presence or its absence, whatever it is that we desire or find ourselves wanting or craving, whether it be you know, for the bell to ring or for you know, lunch to appear or for some juicy fantasy to arise and you know, give me an escape route from whatever's going on. Whatever it is we find ourselves craving or wanting. Just to notice, huh, what's this? To let go or to release ourselves from the grip of craving, of grasping, of desire is to abandon the belief that this thing, whatever it might be, in itself can give us lasting satisfaction. There's, that's really quite a sobering thing to undertake. It's like, where does it leave us if we abandon that fantasy? It really asks some maturity and some courage of us. And as we have the courage and the willingness to do this, to just face that energy, to name it, to see, okay, it's here. This is desire. I don't have to make it go away, but I don't have to feed it. To see it's something that's arisen. Having arisen, it will pass. We can start to sense the freedom that the mind can know when it's not in the grip of desire. Even in the presence of desire, where we're not pushing it away or somehow taking it to be who we are, but simply an experience arising. And the only conclusion we need to draw from it, not anything about ourself, but just the conclusion is that, oh, this desire Desire is the experience that's arising right now. That's the only conclusion we need to draw. And that is simply what is revealed, what is evident in observing the experience, in meeting the experience. And to let ourselves feel what that's like. To be with, to encounter and experience that. That's what letting go means in this context.
The second of the hindrances, as they're generally described, is aversion. And again, we've spoken about this, we'll speak about it more. That energy that arises in us that says, no, I do not want this to be going on. Or that, say, or that tends to go, the, the basic sense is no, but it tends to go in terms of fear or anger from resistance to that sense of no to either a sense of withdrawing or shrinking or wanting to pull away from the experience or somehow wanting to push it away. And it's really interesting how this happens for us because we can feel it, we can experience it physiologically quite directly, that sense of pulling away or shrinking. It's like we contract, we tighten. When there's fear there, we sort of almost pull in on ourselves. And it's, it's a little bit like, you know the expression playing possum, which originates from this country, from the uh, North American opossum, which is, I believe, quite different than the Australasian possum. But, uh, you know, the North American opossum has this technique for avoiding being eaten. You know where it comes from, I guess. Um, by pretending to be dead. And then hopefully the thing that wants to eat it isn't going to be interested in it. That's playing possum. And it's like there's a sense of just sort of this, you know, withdrawing your life from where you are, like pretending to be dead. Fear's a bit like that. It's like this sort of, we kind of shrink in on ourselves. We kind of become frozen or numb inside. And it can be a lot of, tightness and contraction that goes with that. And we need to recognize that experience, that sense of tightening, of contracting, of tension, of withdrawing from the experience we're encountering. encountering like, you know, the image of the sea anemone. Oh, anemone. Um, you know, how, how it sort of just touches it and sort of pulls in on itself, disappears, shrinks away from contact. Sometimes we're like that. When we encounter something difficult. Or at other times, the sense is much more of a sort of, we, we kind of inflate ourselves. We kind of almost try and get bigger. You know what happens when you feel something or when some threat arises? And it might be something we're, we're scared of. But part of what also happens is, you know that tickling on the back of the neck? It's like the, if you've ever seen a cat when it's been in a fight, it's sort of all, the fur's all puffed up. It's like they try and make themselves look bigger to intimidate the opposition. And it's like our body tries to do that when we feel threatened. It tries to get, it's kind of tragically ineffective. So, you know, this little tickling in the back of our neck is trying to make ourselves look bigger. I don't think it's going to scare many, um, many predators. But it's like our body's doing this thing. And what we notice with our mind when we get angry, when we get caught in aversion in that form, rather than the sense of kind of contracting or tightening down, it's like the mind starts to sort of get really certain, really convinced. It's like, this is not right. You are not okay. That was bad. This must be changed. And it's got this sense of confidence to it and certainty that feels really strong and solid. And it's kind of reassuring us, like trying to make us feel safe, trying to sort of push something away that we feel threatened by. And with these experiences... We need to just notice what's happening and say, oh, wow, this is aversion in the form of resistance, like I just, no, don't want it, or fear, like I'm terrified or scared of this. It's going to harm me or overwhelm me, you know. And, you know, classic thing with fear is the sense of um, something arises, and someone was speaking today in the group about this, and the knee starts to hurt. And 
the fear is about, or the, the sense of, I can't bear this for another 40 minutes. Or, you know, or we're just kind of feeling like bored. And it's like, well, I can go through this sitting, but then in half an hour, there's going to be another sitting. You know, and I, I can't bear that. It's like with fear, our mind projects out into the future because it doesn't want to be with the experience that's unpleasant right here and now. It projects out into the future. And then we have the sense of, oh, I can't cope with it. I can't deal with it. And yet, of course we can't cope with it. It hasn't happened yet. It's not happening. And interestingly, the pain or the difficulty or the whatever we're experiencing that's happening right now, it's here. And we're here. It hasn't destroyed us or overwhelmed us or, you know, brought our life to an end. It's just uncomfortable. And so that the tendency of fear to pull us out of the present moment into the future or into the past, we really have to see and understand this. That the experience that's so painful to us isn't the thing we're afraid of. It's the fear itself. And again, the wonderful quote from um, Mark Twain who once said something like, he said, almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happened. (laughs) And yet, you know, it's it's the worrying about them that becomes that they might happen. It's like the worst experience. The thing itself, when it's here, we can deal with it. And so remembering and working with fear, that particular form of aversion, that the story of fear takes us into the future. Like what will happen if? What's it going to be like when? But the experience of fear is happening right here, happening right now. It's always in the present moment. And that's the key. To come back into our body and notice what it's like. Huh? feels like this. It's really unpleasant to experience fear which is why we want to jump away from it. But rather than identifying with it and trying to think we have to fix something like in the future, which we can't necessarily most of the time, sometimes there's things we can address with regard to the future, but while we're here, probably most of them aren't things we need to be dealing with. But so letting that go and just coming back into the, oh, here we are. It's like this. It feels uncomfortable. Maybe I don't like it. But noticing, oh, that's just aversion. It's just the sense of not wishing to have this experience that's uncomfortable. And that's kind of natural. It's kind of human. You know, who, I don't know anyone who likes experiencing the unpleasant. It's by definition, unpleasant is those things we don't like experiencing. And yet if we spend our life constantly trying to move away from the unpleasant experience, we spend our life constantly moving away. We can never rest. We can never stop. And our world, the world around us, is getting faster and faster and faster as we get more skilled and sophisticated at moving away from the thing that's uncomfortable. But never actually escaping because it's our mind that's the issue. So here, to actually meet that sense of I don't want, to let us be with that. Oh, it's like this. Huh, it's not easy to bear. It's not easy to, to meet this experience, but maybe it's possible for us. Maybe we can do that.
And with physical pain, and in fact, likewise with that which is painful in terms of emotional experience, when aversion arises, it's a signal to us. It's like there's something painful when we're saying, I don't want to experience this. That's what aversion says. That's what that particular energy is trying to do. It's trying to get rid of something. But in fact, pain has a purpose. It's saying, and it doesn't really affect all. It says, pay attention here. We don't want to get that message. because, But that's what it's there for. In some situations, we need to pay attention to our body because there's something going on we need to take care of. When I traveled in Asia, in my early time in practice, I had the opportunity to work in a street clinic treating lepers and other poor people on the streets of Calcutta. And knowing very little about the condition of these people, I was shocked and surprised to discover that leprosy doesn't actually damage your fingers or your body, particularly in terms of cause injuries or you know, all the mutilations and the horrible disfigurement we associate with it. Leprosy kills the nerves, so you can no longer feel pain. And then these people who are mostly poor, uneducated, living in really unhygienic, basic and conditions with poor nourishment, they cut themselves, they burn themselves or something. They don't really notice what's going on. It gets infected. Tissue is lost. Bits fall off. That kind of more shocking sort of way it manifests. Not because the leprosy made that happen, but because they couldn't feel any signals from their body telling them, you need to do something about this. And when I understood that, which I found really shocking, it kind of changes the whole relationship to pain. It's like, for those people, being able to feel pain would be really helpful. The fact that we have this sensitivity that allows us to feel pain and to be able to choose. Well, sometimes it's appropriate to, for instance, as we've said, change our posture. If it's really too much pressure on the body, it's okay to change your posture. It's not like we have to sit here enduring anything and everything that comes, sort of like battling against our body. It's useful not to move just every time we feel discomfort because otherwise we can be, you know, constantly moving. But there's also a place where we can say that's enough when we can no longer stay relaxed or open with the experience. Or if we notice after changing our posture at the end of the sitting that there's some pain in our knee or hip that goes on for 5, 10, 15 minutes afterwards and maybe we've stayed there too long. Maybe it would be useful to make a mindful, sensitive adjustment in the context of the practice and treating that as part of our meditation. So learning to Make a response to that which we find aversion arising to. It's not that we have to ignore it and just do nothing, but we do need to make a response. And with aversion, the response is to be with the experience. Aversion says, don't feel this, don't experience it, don't go there. But the response that's called for from us is, experience this. Pay attention to it, see, explore, Find out what's needed. Maybe some attention and care is needed. Maybe what's needed is just to stay steady with the experience and not move away. So when we talk about craving, we talk about letting go. 
It's kind of useful to think in terms of letting go. It's like letting go of our grip of it. But when we talk about aversion and we use the language of letting go, it sounds like it should go away. Because if I let it go, it'll go away, won't it? And that's a very common strategy. But as uh, Ramdas once said, you can't be with something in order for it to go away because it knows. It's like if we're being with something in order for it to go away, that's just a version. Just a slightly more sophisticated version of trying to find some strategy for fixing it. And it knows. Because of course it, what do you mean it? It's us. It's this mind-body process happening. One bit of it trying to make another bit of it go away. No wonder it's uncomfortable. So it's like, can we open to that? Can we let it be? That doesn't mean we're compelled to make no response, but that we start from a place of seeking to open to it. And likewise with emotional processes that might arise that we find challenging. Can we make space for it? And so then we're neither needing to identify with the aversion that says get rid of it, nor somehow make the aversion go away. But by making space for the experience itself, again, its energy is allowed to move and ultimately it will dissipate, it will change. So the next of the hindrances is restlessness. And that sense of there being too much energy and it's like we can't quite stop, we can't quite land, we can't quite connect. The body is kind of like ants in the pants sort of things. Or the mind is going for this, going for that. It's like nothing will quite do, nothing's okay. It's like looking, 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 what, 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 what. And it's, it's, there's a lot of agitation in it, a lot of unease in it. And it's like there's too much energy. And there's not enough calm, there's not enough tranquility. And so the response is to relax. Just relax, breathe out. What can be really useful with this is to notice if we're trying too hard. Restlessness and agitation often arise together with some sense of efforting and trying to make something happen and frustration that it's not. So it's like, relax. And with the breathing, can be really useful to give more attention to the out-breath. When we come into our body and just that way we do and just noticing the breath, when we're connecting with the breathing, noticing the out-breath. Out-breath has a relaxing, releasing quality to it. It's also very useful to connect with that when we're encountering something painful or that, uh, where aversion is arising. Just that sort of relaxing, releasing. Allowing there to be, again, space for the experience. And the opposite of restlessness which arises, which is sleepiness. And again, Mioshin spoke about both of these. I'm not sure if it was this morning or last night, but uh, um, just kind of really bringing them back to our attention in this context. That sense of where we lose or we don't have any access to energy, where we kind of feel flat and dull. Whereas with restlessness, what the primary response needs to be is relax. With sleepiness, the primary response needs to be engage. It's like, can we respond to this condition? To see that sometimes we actually need rest, 
Sometimes, however, and certainly after two or three days, and we're not necessarily quite there yet, it can be that we find ourselves still drowsy and sleepy a lot. And we're no longer so certain that it's because we're just tired and need more rest. Sometimes that's the case. If we have some health condition or we've kind of been overextending ourselves for a long period, it can take hmm, several days to sort of almost catch up with ourselves. But sometimes that drowsiness, heaviness, restlessness, it's like the last route of escape for the mind when we've closed off many of the other ones. And a lot of what we do here is somewhat gently and yet hopefully quite firmly take away our familiar escape routes. We try and do this compassionately in the way we set it up so that all the ways we're used to escaping are not so accessible, or at least if they are, we, we know we're doing it. We can't kid ourselves so much. Because when we keep escaping from our experience, we don't really see what's true. We don't face the challenges in it, but equally we don't get to discover the depths and the richness of it. So there's a way in which we're kind of keeping ourselves here, bringing ourselves back, containing that urge to escape. And sometimes sleepiness or drowsiness, heaviness, dullness, lack of energy is a way in which we're just avoiding being here. So it's useful to ask the question, not to make a conclusion that that's so, because it might be that we are really exhausted, but to leave the question open as to what the cause is, and yet to ask, is there something here I'm trying to avoid? You might not get an answer, or you might. It doesn't matter. Just the question can be useful. And sometimes we get a sense, hmm, yes, there's something there. And if we have that sense, or even if we're not sure, engaging. Again, Myoshin mentioned sort of opening the eyes and the Buddha's um, suggestion of pulling the earlobes. Now, I've always found this one slightly amusing. It never really worked for me personally. But if you look at images of the Buddha, you might suspect he, with all due respect, he had to work with this quite a lot. I don't know. What I find works very reliably is to put your arms up in the air. So I just invite you all to try it right now. One of the reasons for doing this is that now you've all done it, no one needs to feel embarrassed about looking silly for doing it later. But if you put your arms up in the air and just keep them up there, you don't have to, but if you keep them up there for a moment, you'll notice it requires some effort. Now, there's almost nothing that is guaranteed in meditation. And there's nothing I will tell you that you can do this and it will produce that. There's no guarantees. Except I will guarantee you, if you hold your arms up in the air, while you're holding them up there, you will not fall asleep. <laughs> and what happens, and this is remarkable, I find this really, really useful. By making an effort with our body, the mind brightens. The mind can't make itself bright as an act of will. We can't decide. You don't have to keep them up unless you want to. You can. <laughs> but just as you let them down now, just bring your attention into your shoulders, neck, and head. and Notice what that feels like. You may or may not notice some benefit. There's two things in this. One, often when we contract, we contract around the shoulders, neck, and head. And we're tightening in there the energy flow in our body starts to become um, impeded and it's not getting up into the, into the 
top part of our body into the mind. Well, not that the mind is located in the brain, but the brain is definitely involved in the process and it needs oxygen. And so working this area, doing some work with this area actually helps. So as a particular activity, it's useful. But there's something about the way in which by making an effort, like the mind gets the body to make an effort. And in the body making an effort, the mind brightens. But I can't say to my mind, at least I've not figured it out yet. So if any of you figure it out, please tell me, because the thing that would make it just get bright when it's dull, I haven't encountered that. But doing something with the body really works. So it's engage, engage. That's really the invitation. And it's also a useful time to reflect upon our aspiration, what we're committed to. When we're feeling dull or heavy, sometimes that's what we need is to reconnect with a sense of urgency, to know that we're not here forever. This opportunity is not going on endlessly into the future. And to just sense, yeah, what do we really want to do here? That might involve keeping our arms in the air for quite some time. But there is also the option of uh, fall else fails, putting one's hands on the floor in front of one and resting the body. But do so while staying alert in the mind. Rather than collapsing into the drowsiness or resisting it, which is what we normally do, we either try and keep it at bay and it's a real effort and exhausting and it's really unpleasant, or collapsing into it, which is actually quite pleasant, but leads to being asleep, which is really not the point here. Um, seeing if we can relax with the sensations and the experience and yet stay attentive. I found this to be very fruitful. So the last of the hindrances, doubt. Not the doubt of sort of uncertainty, which can be quite useful as a way of opening our mind to new possibilities, but the doubt that actually feels quite certain that I can't do it, or it doesn't work, or it's no good, or it works for everybody else. That kind of undermining skeptical doubt is something that we need to see. And it often arises consequent on one of the other hindrances, consequent on being caught in craving or aversion or restlessness or, um, what's the other one, sloth. And we form the conclusion from that, oh, it's not working, I can't do it, it's no good. Everyone else might be able to, but not me. So I think that conclusion about our practice based on the arising of one hindrance, we could usefully reflect on the fact that in the, the night of his awakening, the Buddha, having sat down under the Bodhi tree, encountered the forces of craving and aversion and restlessness and doubt. I'm not sure he encountered sloth directly, but it uh, depends how you read the, read the, the sutras. Um, but that sense of, well, obviously the fact that he encountered those forces isn't evidence that his practice wasn't working. In fact, it was possibly a sign that something was really powerful and about to ha something really powerful was about to happen. So if we could treat the arising of these forces and these energies not as evidence of our failure in meditation, 
but in fact as evidence that we are challenging the forces we need to challenge. When we can see them, when we can engage with them. With, with doubt, what's needed is a sense of faith, of trust, of being able to recall and bring to mind those things that give us a sense of support, our aspiration, our commitment, what we love, what we value, remembering why we're doing this. And so then we can see these experiences without having to believe they are what we are. They are things that arise, that visit us, and that when seen and handful, handled skillfully, they pass on, they move through. To understand that when we identify with those forces, we become entangled in and bound by them when we take them to be who we are, or when we imagine that there's something we have to stop or prevent arising, as opposed to allow to pass through. Then they are the basis of suffering, the experience of suffering. But when we see them pass, when we allow them to move, and yet come back again and again to the simple open space of awareness that can see what's happening, that doesn't have an agenda for what should or should not be, that isn't using the experience to define who we are or who we are not, then the simple natural luminosity of the mind reveals itself. And so, it requires great courage and great patience and great heart to practice, to undertake this journey. And uh, the words of, you now, it's always a bit risky quoting philosophers because I remember them wrongly sometimes, but I believe it was Spinoza who said, all truly noble human endeavors are as rare as they are difficult. Something about that really speaks to me in this context. That what we're engaged in is something truly noble to awaken the deepest potential of the human heart and mind. An incredibly noble undertaking. And one that is also rare and challenging in equal degree. And to really honor yourselves for this undertaking, to really respect the goodness of what you're engaging in here. And to trust that all that comes as challenges is part of this journey of awakening. And that ultimately nothing that arises can in and of itself take us away from the, the natural abiding, the simple openness of life that is present, that is awake, that is simply here, 
and now. So let's just sit quietly together for a few moments. May we all, through our practice and in our lives, understand and learn to work skillfully with the challenging forces that arise in our minds and hearts. Learn to rest more and more fully and deeply into the simple openness of life, just as it is. To recognize the natural luminosity, the radiance of heart and mind. For our own welfare, for the welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.